Welcome to another episode of New Mexico in Focus. I am Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS and your host for this podcast. We hope you had a chance to listen to our most recent episode, our line panel discussions from a recent show. We talked about the plans for a new multi-use stadium in Albuquerque that the city council will be voting on tonight, actually. So if you're interested in this, we encourage you to watch the city council meeting online and uh, find out about that. The stadium would primarily be used as the home uh, pitch for New Mexico United, our USL soccer team here. We also talked about the return of mask mandates as uh, the Delta variant cases continue to rise in New Mexico and everyone scrambles to make sure we don't go into full-blown lockdown again. Love to hear your opinions and thoughts on those topics as well. You can always leave us a message here or on any of our social media channels, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We are there. Just search for NM in focus. In this episode, we are going to be talking about just the really uh, tragic history of Native American boarding schools throughout the U.S. here in New Mexico as well. You have probably heard about the high-profile cases, especially in Canada, recently where mass graves have been uncovered at the site of some of these uh, Native American boarding schools, which were uh, often run by churches and really designed to strip the culture from the Native American students who didn't have a choice of whether or not to be there. So not a great point in our country's history, but important that we learn about what exactly happened there and and begin a healing process so we don't let those types of things uh, happen ever again. And so our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez, uh, t- talked to some tribal leaders here in New Mexico to get their reaction to those Revelations and also word of an investigation that has been launched by uh, Department of the Interior Secretary Deb Holland, a former congresswoman here in New Mexico, to look into that history here in the United States. So here now, correspondent Antonia Gonzalez. thank you for being with us today and just acknowledge that this is a difficult subject for many people to talk about and maybe even our viewers to watch. Um, We're talking about boarding schools in the United States and impacts on Native American people here across the country and in New Mexico. Um, Councilman Garcia, you were there at the National Congress of American Indians Mid-Year Convention when Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland made the announcement on her boarding school initiative. What was your reaction hearing that? Uh, the, the initial reaction is that uh, it, it did happen because uh, uh, it, it started, her efforts started while she was still Congresswoman and uh, she was considering uh, setting up a um, investigation or uh, something to that effect of what finally transpired. And the fact that she moved over to Secretary of Interior, uh, which was a, one of the best moves in, in the country, uh, for Indian country, um, she was able to move this effort a little faster than, than the normal. And so I think the uh, effort has been long overdue, but there's a whole lot of history that most people in this country that don't know about and that's uh, Indian history. 
uh, all of the things that we've gone through, the suffering and, and all of that. And Angel, what was your response when you heard the news of this investigation? Um, not only just an investigation, but the U.S. government acknowledging its part in federal Indian boarding schools. Um, it couldn't have come at a better time if we're paying attention to what's happening in Canada right now. The discovery after discovery after discovery of burial sites, hundreds of indigenous children buried at residential schools. Um, and so we're both grateful um, and hopeful with Secretary Holland being at the helm of the Department of Interior um, to, to push further these efforts. And Councilman, can you talk a little bit about the impact on Pueblo people here in New Mexico with boarding schools? It's a history that tribal communities are well aware of, even though it's just now being brought to light in the public in the United States. We hear stories from our parents, our grandparents. It's a living history and the impacts, including trauma and abuse, have been intergenerational. There's no understanding of what the intent was uh, other than trying to promote education, but that that's not even a, um, a venue that the United States had its, its uh, mind on. It was something different. And I think the United States has, has not talked about that. And the word is called genocide. And uh, genocide is what it's about. What's happened is that religion and way of life are misunderstood by the dominant society. So the fact that we have culture and tradition, that's not religion, that's way of life. That's our way of life. And to just categorize it into religious thing, which is the conversion thing that you want to do. And for Pueblo country, because of the, uh, what we still go through in our um, traditional ways for taking care of our lost ones, um, it's very, very hurtful if someone is buried elsewhere uh, that they are not part of that land base, if you will, not part of Mother Earth at that point. And so trying to understand that is a big, big issue. But the fact that it, it's kind of coming out now, it's being exposed, I think it's, it's not going to happen in a year's time. Uh, it's not going to happen in five years' time going to take a long, long time. The healing part hasn't even been measured at this point because it, it's uh, so small. And uh, Angel uh, Councilman Garcia mentioned healing and working with a lot of people through your coalition, dealing with trauma and impacts of intergenerational trauma is what the coalition you work with does. How is using culture part of healing and can help with the uh, healing of impacts from boarding schools? Um, so what Councilman Garcia mentioned uh, that, that the ceremonies that we have, the process of um, returning our people into the earth is so important. And when we began having these conversations, just as a staff organization, um, so many feelings of anger and grief and hurt um, arose just within the 12 of us at the coalition. And as we began to have these conversations with our members and community members, um, 
it continued to rise. And so when um, we pulled along with Albuquerque Mutual Aid and Fight for Our Lives, um, these community-based organizations together, um, a couple of efforts, it, it began as a conversation of what do we do next? And when we really got deep into um, the feelings that we were experiencing, um, it was very important that we had uh, a space and a time for folks to come together um, to heal. And, and what that meant was to grieve collectively. Um, we did a lot of focus around the children that we do have and a lot of events to support their well-being. Um, but that healing process is very important. Um, it's also not linear. It's gonna take a lot of time. It's gonna take a lot of turns. I think the more information that comes out from the investigations uh, through the Department of the Interior will continue to surface these feelings for folks. Um, and it's important that we continue to hold space and come together um, in new ways, especially given COVID and the remoteness of um, what interaction looks like now uh, to heal and, and to connect. And Council, Councilman Garcia, just to follow up with that is, what do you hope comes out of this first year of the investigation? Well, I, I, I hope that it doesn't come into a, uh, a political battle. And as you, as uh, from my experience in, in being involved in tribal government and uh, Indian uh, government per se uh, all across the country, and uh, collaborations and working with the federal government, um, it sometimes efforts like this tend to stall out and it becomes a political game rather than the real true spirit of what it is we're trying to accomplish. And the accomplishment I think has to do with healing. And unless you understand the parts of healing and how long it takes and what is needed by the people that need that healing. Number one, it's got to be accepted that th these things happen. But the guilty party also has to accept that these things happen. And the history of it is that it wasn't written in everyday book literature that I've got here. And so how many times have Indian people in their history, courses that they've taken because of, it's a requirement in, in the education process. How many times have they read anything like this in the history book? And I say, nil, because it's not in the history book. And so when you're at that level of a denial by the federal government, that these things happen, then it becomes a, a harder effort to bring it to the surface and then move it along. And uh, Angel, any final thoughts? Yeah, the healing requires connection, that um, we cannot have reconciliation without truth, that this was the practice of genocide and that it's time for the country to reckon with that. There are ways in which New Mexico can grapple this issue um, it's through the provisions of um, Yazi versus Martinez to get that curriculum into the textbooks of children now. 
It is um, ensuring that everyone is able to have a firm understanding of this is the history of this country. Thank you both for joining us today on New Mexico in Focus, and there's definitely a lot of work ahead on boarding school, uh, looking at boarding school history here in the United States, and definitely for the healing process. Thank you so much. We mentioned it briefly a little bit ago, but U.S. Department of the Interior Secretary Deb Holland, former congresswoman from here in New Mexico, uh, has announced that there will be an investigation into the history of Native American boarding schools here in the U.S. She has initiated that, and recently she talked to Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour about why it is so important to fully uncover that history and deal with the implications and the ramifications of that history. And so we wanted to bring some of that interview to you as well here. Again, this is Department of the, Sec Department of the Interior Secretary Deb Holland uh, sitting down with Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland recently announced her U.S. boarding school initiative to investigate boarding school history here in the United States. She recently sat down with PBS NewsHour to share some thoughts. Secretary Holland, thank you so much for joining us. I have to say uh, at the outset uh, that this is one of the saddest, most disturbing stories I've ever seen, uh, to think of these thousands and thousands of children taken from their families, um, so many of whom never came back. The families never knew what happened to them. Uh, it's, it's, it's unspeakable. And your own family was touched by this. Yes, it is a tragic era in our history, in American history, uh, the boarding school era. I think about it as, as sort of one of the last ditch efforts to uh, get Native Americans out of their communities and put them into mainstream society uh, after, you know, genocide, after uh, the killing off of, you know, vast numbers of Native folks so that folks could take their land. And it was tragic after everything else that had happened as well. And, it, you know, they, they took Indians from their communities and their families so they could uh, indoctrinate them, right, to take away their clothing, to uh, brutally, uh, you know, take away their languages and their cultures. And, um, and many children, yes, they never made it back home. I am grateful that my grandparents uh, made it back home. I wouldn't be here today uh, if they hadn't, of course. And, um, and so this, this is a history that, that, is, that all of us um, need to know about so that we can begin a healing process for the families who are still living with the generational trauma of, of the boarding school era, of the assimilation era, of, the, um, of, of all of the terrible uh, eras of federal Indian policy that, that tribes have had to live with. Do you have a good understanding, do you think, of, of what happened to the children who died? 
Well, I mean, we don't know, right? Um, and that is one of the things that uh, we hope to find out with our federal boarding school initiative. It was widely known that in Indian boarding schools that malnutrition was an issue. You know, if you talk to folks whose grandparents went to boarding school and they've heard stories, you know, there's stories about kids jumping off of trains because they didn't want to go to the boarding school, uh, running away and, and never being seen again. Um, th this was, you know, there, there were many uh, ways, um, yes, that children um, uh, died in those settings. And uh, that's one of the things that we're hoping we can find out. And it was, as you said, a widely accepted policy uh, in this country, in the United States, and in Canada. Um, I, I read your quote from the Civil War veteran who founded uh, the, the, the school for children in Pennsylvania, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, who said, and I'm quoting, kill the Indian in him and save the man. Um, it, it is astonishing to think that that was the mindset behind this. Yes, indeed. Native Americans weren't thought of as humans. Uh, we weren't considered citizens of this country until 1924. Uh, we didn't have the right to vote in many, many communities, some as late as 1960 or 62. Um, we weren't thought of as valuable, um, you know, uh, contributors to this country. Uh, and yet today we see that, um, you know, Native Americans have the highest rate of, of um, military service. Uh, the ratio is higher than any other groups of people. We step up to uh, defend our country. Um, and of course, today we defied all the odds. Uh, many of us, Many of our families, our ancestors persevered. My grandparents actually were part of the assimilation era. After boarding school, uh, they went and worked on the railroad in Winslow, Arizona. Can we be confident that we're going to get to the bottom of it when it's the government, in effect, investigating itself? Well, I absolutely feel that with our initiative that we can work on healing. Uh, I really feel confident that, I mean, that's a goal for us, and we want to make sure that the families get the answers that they need and they want. The federal government has a trust obligation to Indian tribes. Uh, that is in exchange for all the land uh, that be essentially became the United States. This was all Indian land at one time. And so um, I feel confident that this is part of our trust uh, obligation to Indian tribes, this initiative that we are moving forward with. I feel very confident that this is a new era and uh, we want to make sure that tribes have a seat at the table. And ultimately, how do you see holding the institutions accountable that were responsible for this? That remains to be seen, of course. Uh, there's a lot of, um, recently I was able to um, participate in a ceremony at Carlisle. Uh, it's now an Army War College. It was the Carlisle Industrial School uh, for Native Americans. My great-grandfather attended that school, and I was invited by the Rosebud uh, Sioux Tribe um, as they work to um, remove children from their tribe who were buried in a cemetery there uh, to take them home to their homeland um, in South Dakota. And um, 
I think that it's up to every tribe, right? How, how do they want to um, move forward? How, what is their idea of healing? And, and what would make them feel like they've gotten the answers they want? And we're going to do our best to make sure that we are attentive to those needs. Secretary Holland, you also wrote recently about the challenge of loving your own country, uh, a country that was responsible for committing these acts. How do you explain that to, to others, uh, to other Native Americans uh, who look at this and question, how can, they, how can you love a country that has done this? Well, first of all, my ancestral homelands are here. <laughs> And I can't go anywhere else. I, uh, this is my home, uh, and, and this is where my family is. This is where my history is. We've been here for tens of thousands of years, uh, and, uh, and we want to make sure that we are defending this land for future generations. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, we thank you very much. Thank you. Rural health care has been an issue we have covered for a long time here on the show, and especially doctor shortages in some of our smallest rural communities. And there was good news out recently in, in, on that front, which we know uh, with the COVID pandemic, just how crucial and important that rural health care, community health care system is across a state like New Mexico, so big, so spread out, and so many of these small communities. And uh, the UNM Health Sciences and, and uh, the educators there have been working hard for years now to get the uh, doctors that they train and that do the residencies here in New Mexico to stay in New Mexico. And it seems to be paying off. The most recent batch of graduates, uh, a majority of them are staying in New Mexico, and that includes folks who didn't even come to school or didn't even live here when they went to school at UNM or participate in the residency as a native of New Mexico. So we wanted to find out what is the secret sauce of sorts to get folks to stay and work and practice in family health here in New Mexico. And so our senior producer, Matt Grubbs, sat down with some of the people behind it, as well as a recent graduate, graduate to find out what is making the difference. Here now is that conversation. I'm Matt Grubbs. For years, New Mexico has had the nation's highest proportion of physicians aged 60 or older. The state's rural nature and wide open spaces, something we have all grown to love and appreciate. Um, it's been a tough sell for new doctors. And when residencies ended this spring for the University of New Mexico, 15 family medicine physicians were residents. 13 of them chose to stay. It doesn't mean the gap is closed, that doesn't mean the problem is solved, but this is a big step. Drs. Molly McLean and Arthur Kaufman are with the Health Sciences Center in the medical school. And joining us by, by Zoom is Dr. Darshan Patel, who will be practicing um, at the end of August in Lovington. And thank you all for being here. Uh, why don't we just start with a very general question. Is there um, sort of a secret sauce to get a result like this um, with a class of physicians to get so many people, um, we should point out that not all of them are from New Mexico, um, to stay in state, something we really need. I think there, there is a secret sauce and I think many people have been working on this for many years. Um, historically, looking back to 2011, about 65 to 70% of our graduates do tend to stay and about 25% of them historically have gone rural. 
What makes this year so special is 87% stayed and about 62% ended up going rural. Um, I think over the past seven years, our previous program director, Dr. Dan Waldman, did a lot of work thinking about how do you match people's interests who are coming with the mission of our hospital and of our program. And I think he's thought a lot about that and done an excellent job really figuring out what kinds of criteria to look for to make sure that folks are interested in underserved communities, staying in New Mexico, and going to a rural location. Um, I think the rural piece this year was particularly powerful and has been very variable over the past years. And so Dr. Um, Waldman um, and Dr. Kaufman was involved too, um, really instead of focusing on an urban residency, creating a rural residency. And so um, they have created a rural residency at the IHS at Shiprock. Um, the first IHS residency ever. They are recruiting their first class this year. Um, and so we, there's a lot more going on than just at UNMH in terms of making sure that people stay in New Mexico and people go to rural New Mexico as well. And IHS being, being Indian, Indian Health, Health Service. Service. Correct, um, yeah. That's pretty remarkable. Dr. Patel, when you were looking at um, places where you would like to be a resident. What drew you um, to this program? Did some of that stuff that Dr. McLean was talking about play into your choice? Certainly, I um, actually grew up here in Albuquerque and um, it was really important to me to um, train where I call home and um, serve the community that um, helped me when I uh, was being raised and so, um, you know, it was a privilege to be able to be part of the UNM Family Medicine Residency Program. Um, and I think the colleagues and the mentors that, um, you know, I was able to work with really helped shape my decision to um, serve the rural communities of New Mexico. That's something that uh, strikes me as potentially being a change in the way um, residents are thinking about how they want to serve. I know that um, working in a big hospital in a big city with lots of amenities mm -hmm. might be attractive, but it sounds like um, residents are thinking a little bit differently about at least how they want to start their medical careers. Right, and in family medicine, we're we're trained to be generalists, and you know we recognize that um, our skills are um, needed and also some sometimes best served in rural areas where um, access to resources might be. Uh, limited, um, even more limited than in Albuquerque. Um, and so through the, you know, robust training process provided by our residency program, I think my colleagues and I realized that uh, we would be able to kind of, um, you know, step into filling needs um, outside of Albuquerque. Dr. Arthur Kaufman, you've had a long history with this, with this program. Um, Doctors and um, their partners, as they look at places that they want to live and begin their career, I know that they can feel um, isolated, not just geographically, but socially. How do you sort of um, address some of those needs um, that everyone has, but that might be particularly difficult for doctors? I think um, you have to create a, an environment in smaller communities, which uh, not just replicates what we have in an urban area, but actually goes beyond it in many ways. Smaller communities are very supportive of each other. And sometimes in larger communities, people feel anonymous and lonely. 
but in smaller communities, everyone knows each other. And it's very attractive, especially to people who've never seen that before. So that uh, we've created, for example, where uh, Dr. Patel is going, created uh, Lovington and Hobbs almost as a learning destination. Students, residents, others are all going there so that they're not isolated, they're part of a larger community. And the University of New Mexico is investing in decentralizing our resources not just family medicine, but also nursing, pharmacy, physical therapy, so that there's a whole community uh, that supports each one of those practitioners. In the past, would um, a residency with family and community medicine, would that have taken place primarily at uh, UNMH, at the hospital here in Albuquerque? Almost all training traditionally is in large academic health centers and large cities because the incentives were there. But now, especially with the leadership in our state, we're developing models with partner community hospitals, partner community health centers, and the state government to shift that, where resources are going to communities to hire and train residents. And that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, I, I used to work in the Indian Health Service. It changed my life. I saw the world in a different way. We have to give our residents community experiences which will change their attitudes and where those communities become far more attractive than what they can do in a large urban center. And Dr. McLean, are residents or prospective residents, are they responding um, to this type of a program? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I think UNM has been just a leader in creating family medicine doctors for quite some time. Um, we have a very strong program and because we have such excellent residents that come, um, they are also very good at helping the medical students see how powerful family medicine is. Um, and I think it's, it's amazing to work with. You don't have to do a lot of work. We attract these residents and then the residents kind of do that wonderful work for themselves. And I think that they have just done an amazing job. They come in passionate to work for underserved communities and they dedicate their energy and time and their futures to doing that. And I think that we just did a good, we, we, don't, we don't create that in the residency program. We just facilitate the education that they kind of want. Um, and so I think it's, it seems like the medical, the future of, of medicine really is, um, I think, mirrored in our residents. And I think the medical students that we work with, um, their drive really is to serve underserved, go rural, do all the things that family medicine doctors can do that other specialties really can't do. Um, it's just really exciting to be a part of it and to be able to facilitate that. Sure. Dr. Patel, you're one of um, the few people in the program who actually is from New Mexico and, and chose to stay here. It sounds like most of the folks, at least in this class, um, who chose to stay here weren't from here. Have you discussed those choices to, you know, to stay in New Mexico and work in rural hospitals with any of your, um, with any of your classmates or, or folks in that residency class? Yes. I mean, I think we have uh, robust opportunities to train in rural sites throughout our residency program. And I think that allows people who aren't, you know, familiar with the rural communities of New Mexico to actually have um, strong training uh, opportunities while um, they're completing the residency program. Um, and so, you know, I think that was a really important part of having people decide to go rural. Um, but it's true, we we're competing nationally for residents to come to New Mexico. We know that people who train in New Mexico will stay, um, you know, statistically have a higher likelihood of staying. And so I think, you know, we need to recognize as a state, um, University of New Mexico needs to attract residents um, so that we can convince them to stay after they're done with their, with their training. 
having a chance to, um, to work in a rural hospital or a rural medical setting uh, prior to actually taking a job uh, in a place like Lovington, uh, how did that play into your education and, um, and your excitement basically for, uh, for heading um, out into sort of the, the wilds of New Mexico, at least as folks from maybe Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and Las Cruces see it? Well, um, you know, I, I think even though our, we're primarily serving patients in Albuquerque, many of our patients have footprints in rural areas. Um, you know, it's, it, you can be rural very quickly, even if you live in the Albuquerque Santa Fe area. Um, so my continuity clinic site, for example, was in the Albuquerque Indian Health Center, which is an IS, IHS facility. And many of my patients were traveling, you know, many, many miles, hours to come to see uh, their provider here in Albuquerque. And so, um, you know, I think um, even if you're practicing in Albuquerque, you recognize that um, our state um, is is very rural. And I, I think being a family medicine physician, we recognize that even though we serve patients in Albuquerque, the needs are even greater outside of the state or outside of the city. Sure. Doctors Kaufman and McLean, as you look at the future of this program, um, do you feel like the future is sort of a more decentralized model? Yes, um, I think the model that uh, uh, Dr. Patel and uh, Dr. McLean are developing really demonstrates a huge change in our thinking about training because it has to be driven by community need, not necessarily big city hospital yeah. need. And one of the uh, data fragments that's important is that if you can locate a graduate physician in a rural community, that physician generates about a million dollars in business for that community. It sustains the rural hospital, it brings jobs to that community, it raises the tax base. There's a huge economic impact, and that's why there's so much interest in this kind of program. That graduate education is not just for a few doctors, it's the impact on community health that's so important. Do you get that when you look at um, the places to, um, to put your residents, you know, in, in rural communities? Um, do you hear from not just the hospitals and the clinics, um, but, you know, from the mayors, the councils, things like that? Oh, yeah. I think that's one of the biggest draws. We have a required rural rotation for all of our residents, um, and we have relationships, really strong, important relationships with the Indian Health Services at Zuni and at Shiprock. We have some sites at Gallup, and there are a number of residency programs at rural sites at Silver City. Um, Santa Fe is still considered rural, although I think that's kind of funny, um, and we uh, work closely with them as well. And I think what happens is that the residents go to those sites and really see what it feels like to be a rural physician and see how what an important but also partnered role they play with the community that it's not just a doctor being in a clinic seeing patients and having kind of isolated from that relational piece I think they go into the community um, and I had that same experience at Shiprock you go into a community and it just like what Dr. Kaufman was saying it feels completely different and it feels more powerful in terms of the, the relational piece, which is so important for family medicine. Primary care is about relationship and it really is about building connection with people. Um, and I think if you have the capacity to do that in a community setting, it feels like so many of us feel that's what family medicine is all about.
And so those rural rotations are just so important for that experience that we may never have had before. And I think that may have a large part in why we had residents like clamoring to get to Zuni when they graduated, clamoring to get to Shiprock. We have two folks going to Gallup, two folks going to Santa Rosa. They had that experience in the rural setting that they don't get in a city, in a, in a more urban setting. And I think that had a lot to do with why they stayed. Well, it's an encouraging result, and we thank you all for <laughs> the time that you spent thinking about it and the time you spent uh, talking with us uh, about it. Thanks for your work. We appreciate it. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. All right. We always like to share some of our extra content with you, and this week we had the opportunity to talk about redistricting, uh, and we encourage you to head to uh, the NMPBS website. That's nmpbs.org, and on the front page you will find a link to a landing page we've created about a series of upcoming public forums on the redistricting process. If you remember, lawmakers last year passed a law to create a redistricting committee to try to make the redistricting process less partisan and less susceptible to gerrymandering and other uh, games that can be played with the voting process here in New Mexico. And this these public forums are part of the redistricting committee's work, and there are a bunch of them, and you can find out exactly when they are, so you can go in person when they come to a community near you, but they will also all be on Zoom, so the information is there for that, and we are going to be live streaming as many of those as possible on that website as well. So we encourage you to uh, go read up on all of that. There's even an online mapping tool where you can draw out what you think the map should be and learn more about the process. And so we wanted to do a primer of sorts on not only the public forums, but that online mapping tool and just the entire process. It's a complicated one, and those maps are different depending on which races you're talking about, Senate races, congressional races, state house and Senate races, lots to consider there. And there's not a lot of time with this. All this has to be taken care of by the end of the year. And so we wanted to bring you that discussion that we did on Facebook Live. And again, encourage you to go to the website to learn more. Hey, Kevin McDonald. Hello, friends. It's Wednesday noon. Time for a Facebook Live. Joining us here in a very special, I'm going to consider it a very special first of its kind, redistricting in New Mexico is now on. It's hot and heavy. I'm sure if you've been following the news, the formation of the committee was somewhat of a newsworthy thing for a while. But we are at a point where July is a month of much activity for this group. We're going to talk about why it's important for us to get after this redistricting thing in the manner that we are, how you can participate particularly in the drawing of maps for redistricting. It's going to be, this is a very important month we've got coming up in August. It'll be very busy leading into September, which has a couple more wrinkles as well. So I want to join, I want to be, um, I'm very grateful to, to be joined by Edward L. Chavez. He's the chair of the Citizen Redistricting Committee. Of course, Mr. Chavez is a former state Supreme Court judge here as well. I'm just going to refer to him as Ed. He's a private citizen now in doing his bit to better our state. And I want to thank him personally for that too, Ed. Thank you very much. Also, the community uh, liaison for the CRC, as we might hear us refer to it, the Citizen Redistricting Committee, Lily Irvin Vatella. She is the community liaison. She's going to be helping us in a lot of the how-to bits about how you can participate in this. She's going to share some very interesting bits about how 
online, it's very easy to get your word in about how you see redistricting. And I'm, I'm talking statewide here. We're not talking just the Albuquerque area. Let's get that straight right away. So Ed, let's kick it off first. And for folks, uh, we always want to make sure we're not shooting over the heads of folks who may be coming into the picture, so to speak. Why did the governor sign this bill in early April to form this committee? What is its goal? And, and take us up to July in the meeting you just had on July 2nd and bring us up to the present. What's the basic understanding here? Yeah, sure, Gene. Every 10 years, basically year ending in one, the uh, New Mexico has to draw new district maps for congressional, our state house, state senate, and the public education commission uh, because of the new census data. The Bureau of Census takes a snapshot, gives us an official population count. And as you know, over 10 years, our populations will shift naturally, you know, births and people who pass away, but also people moving into New Mexico and moving out of New Mexico. And there's a doctrine, a one person, one vote doctrine, which means that we try to draw districts to have equal population in each district. Uh, <clears throat> Redistricting, Gene, is really a community project. Mm -hmm. This year, uh, it's going to be very different. The legislature has always attempted to draw the districts, but for the last two decades, they were unable to do so successfully. And as a result, there was litigation costing the taxpayers about six and a half million dollars. Yep. This year, we have a citizen redistricting committee whose goal it is, is to try to make sure that every voter has a fair and an equal opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. It's really about the voters choosing their representatives, not their elected representatives choosing the voters. And uh, we have directives uh, to make sure that this is that public input is received. We're going to have to balance some geographical and legal considerations. And as a result, we want to be transparent in the process. Mm -hmm. We're going to have public meetings. Uh, that will comply with the Open Meetings Act. We will document public input. Uh, we will receive maps from the public. We'll make sure that the legislators are made aware of the public input. We'll make every pro proposed redistricting map available for public comment. Uh, we will not recommend a map to the legislature that the public has not had a chance to comment on. We will document the justification for our maps and why uh, we may have deviated from equal population. And we're gonna require public votes, votes by those on the CRC uh, who will have the authority to recommend uh, maps to the legislature. It's really a, a community project. And, and I'm happy that uh, you're putting on this program because we also have the responsibility as a committee to educate the public on the importance of redistricting how they can participate and why it's important for them to participate. That's right. Ed, if you could, you know, we throw a lot of terms around in this world, gerrymandering being one of them. Um, explain to the folks in your view what gerrymandering is, why it's a problem and why this task force is uh, actually designed to help solve some of that problem. Yeah, the, the real problem with gerrymandering, it, it means basically you're, you're rigging the system. Mm -hmm to favor a political party or to favor an incumbent or, or to, to favor a candidate or, or to favor a, a racial group. Uh, and, and you have to avoid that. And the way you avoid that is with public input, you take a look at what the uh, communities of interest are uh, and we can get into that in more detail. Yeah. 
and, and you also have uh, other districting principles that you follow. And if you adhere to them, and if you're transparent about your process, it really reduces uh, the prospect of gerrymandering. In fact, something as simple as having compact and contiguous uh, districts can reduce partisan gerrymandering or even racial gerrymandering. Because what it does is it allows for the elected representative not only to get out and campaign, but if they win their election, to be able to communicate with the public in a way that uh, saves travel time and cost. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Let's do talk about some of those constituencies that we have to be aware of here. There's been a lot of hard work. You mentioned this lawsuit, by the way, uh, 10 years ago in 2010. Um, Native Amer Let's start with Native American representation. Um, there was some heartburn early on that there was not nearly enough representation on the committee you know coming out of the gate but my sense of it from reading over the notes and watching the delight to the july 2nd hearing there is clearly a sensitivity to this issue uh talk about if you would add how important it is to get this right for our native american brothers and sisters and how it impacts uh them not getting this right yeah, you know, I, I will tell you that it's a legitimate criticism that we do not have a Native American on the committee, mm -hmm. but we are doing our best to make sure that they are included and that they have a voice in this process. Uh, we actually added an additional meeting on tribal lands, but the law requires it is that we only have one of those meetings on tribal lands. But what we've done is we're going to have at least two meetings, both rounds of meetings, the first round in August and the second round in late September, October on tribal lands. And in addition to that, if you think about Farmington, uh, there's gonna be an opportunity there for Native, Native Americans to participate. But at the same time, we're developing a satellite facility at UNM Gallup branch, so that individuals in the Gallup area don't have to travel all the way to Farmington to actively participate in that meeting. Right. So we're doing all we can to have an outreach. We also, by the way, have a, arranged for a Navajo translator interpreter to uh, go on our website. And we have some videos that teach people how to draw maps from communities of interest and what redistricting is all about. Mm -hmm. He's going to translate that and do a voiceover in the Navajo language. Uh, we're working on trying to make sure that if, if uh, we need interpretive services that we get that. Uh, so so we're, we're really reaching out to the Native American community and, and they're very active. And, and, I, and I love that July 2nd meeting because it was democracy in action. That, Thank you. Yep. You want your citizens to actively participate in our democracy. And, and I loved every minute of it. You know, it's interesting. I, I have to agree for, uh, maybe I'm just a nerd for these things. I thought the July 2nd meeting was a, was a good way to get off, uh, so as they say. Uh, Lily uh, Urban Vitella, I'm so glad you're joining us. Uh, first, could you explain your position as a community liaison for the CRC? What does that entail? And, and what, what's your, like your day-to-day, week-to-week work in that capacity? Well, Jean, I think you and I have similar nerd tendencies because I too really enjoy democracy building. So yep. I feel really lucky that I get to work with the committee and I get to work with communities. And so there are a couple of main thrusts and then of what we're doing together. And then I'm happy to tell you more detail if you really want to nerd out with me. Mm -hmm. So um, at a, on a broad stroke, one of the things that I'm doing is intentionally reaching out to grassroots 
organizers, individuals, organizations, NGOs, and other community-based organizations who likely would re represent a community of interest, with particular attention to communities that have been underrepresented and have had concerns about how redistricting has happened in the past. Right. And so in that outreach, what I'm working to do is you know, alleviate concerns, answer questions, and if the, there are concerns that remain, help people think about how to communicate those in the most impactful way. Mm -hmm. So whether it is by organizing folks and collectively building community maps that say, hey, this is really what we think makes sense um, and how it ought to work, or whether it's providing written testimony what we know is that by having that give and take relationship of providing information, setting expectations, helping people navigate the logistics, plus asking those big questions about what do we care about in our community? What is it that we want elected folks to be able to represent? That will be such um, a powerful way to bring people into the meetings in ways where they're really coming in strong. Mm -hmm. right? And in ways that our committee members can really hear that input and use it well in their decision-making. Mm -hmm. the, the second part of it um, is getting to go around the state that I was born and raised in and love so much. And so I get to join Ed and the other committee members and be at meetings. And so when people come in, I get to welcome them, talk to them, see if there are any logistical support that they need. So if they have poster board maps, cool, cool, they can show those. If they have electronic maps and they wanna make sure that the team is pulling up the correct maps when they're giving testimony, um, or if they just have some things that they wanna share about what needs to happen. I'm there to help facilitate that and make sure that they know just how honored we are, how thankful we are that they're participating. Um, because as, as Ed was saying so eloquently, participation is vital. This community project um, is really a heart and soul issue about maintaining the well-being of our democracy. So interesting to hear you say that. It really is really basic, isn't it? It's this is not a highfalutin, you know, forty thousand foot discussion, Ed, at all, is it? This is really right close to the ground. And Lily, if I could go ahead and pull up your Citizen Redistricting Committee page, so I want to have Ed kind of kind of wrap over that uh, just for a quick second. I got a couple of questions because we might as well move into what Lily uh, has just mentioned, which I think is very exciting, and that is the outreach effort. And that you guys are going to be start doing the in August. What a calendar. I mean, I'm looking at it on my end. I mean, literally the first week, it's like you're stem to stern across the state. What was the goal here? What, you know, why so much so vigorously so early? What's the deal there? Well, the, the idea is to go out and, and get public input on what their communities of interest are. You know, a, a population that is together, geographically together, that has common interests. To have effective representation, you need to make sure that those pockets of communities of interest uh, are represented by, by the representative. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to have somebody who's going to advocate for you if you're splitting up these communities. So that, that's the idea, and we want to reach every region of the state. I mentioned the satellite facility at Gallup, but when we're in Roswell, right. we're going to have a satellite facility in Portales at ENMU so that the people in that area can attend and participate in the meeting themselves. Uh, when we are in Las Cruces, we're setting up a satellite at Western New Mexico University in Silver City so that people don't have to travel all the way from that area to Las Cruces to actively participate. 
we we want uh, as much input as we can get from all of the people of New Mexico. Interesting. I see the screens back up. Lily, thank you so much. Um, go ahead and scroll down just a little bit because as the folks can see right here, I love this opening. The communities of interest through this portal, you can provide written testimony, the plans, how to draw a map. Go ahead and walk us through what we're seeing here. This is actually kind of interesting. Absolutely, Jane. So as you said, it's not highfalutin. The only expertise that people need is to care about our democracy and care about our community. And often the most wisdom comes from people who are living in communities all around and know the issues um, up close and personally. Mm -hmm. And so if you come on into the portal, you can get to it from the redistricting website. I'll go ahead and repeat the .com on that um, at the end. Mm -hmm. And so again, um, what people are able to do is find out more about what is written testimony or what is a districting plan or what is a community of interest, right? So if, if we're using phrases and you're like, that sounds like some gobbledygook to me, you don't need to be a political scientist or a demographer or a politician to, to understand. So there's some really nice quick tutorials about drawing communities mm -hmm. and drawing districts. Mm -hmm. And so if folks wanna watch these short and sweet videos, they can, they're pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. If you move on down, you'll see that there's opportunities to weigh in in so many ways. People can draw a map of congressional districts, right? Hey, we haven't had such a huge population change that we're going to have more than three congressional districts. But folks can say, hey, I think this is where the lines need to be. Um, and here's why. Mm -hmm. um, people are able to say, you know, my Senate district is, is shaped like a special shapes rodeo balloon. And it doesn't make any sense to me. And this is what I think it should look like. Mm -hmm. um, and the same for the House. And we're also able to weigh in on mapping the public education districts, right? So on so many levels of governance, we can have a say in who and how we're represented. So people are like, yes, I want a map. Great, they can go for it. You get to click on and it'll take you to Districter, which is a free open source app. Mm -hmm. And you get to start playing around and doing the map making. Let's see if this screen is wanting to share that. There we go. It's just taken a minute. I hear you. So when you go in, there's lots of yeah. So there's lots of parameters that people can play with. They can say, oh, you know, I'm going to really pay attention to geography because people who live on side of on this side of the river have these economic experiences, and people who live on that side of the mountain have this kind of health interest, right? So whether it's economic or health, whatever that interest is that's driving your thinking or how natural resources are used, you can use that wisdom to start drawing a map. Mm. So what's really nice about this is it's helping you understand to Ed's point about that one person, one vote and equal representation. So you, it has information about population. And so that way, when you're playing with maps, you can understand what your impact is on others. Um, it also shows you data layers. So you can see again those boundaries. You can see where our pueblos and tribes and nations are at. Um, so that way we don't forget our sovereign brothers and sisters. You can say, you know what, show me what the current US con congressional map looks like. Or show me what the state Senate looks like. See, see what we mean about special shapes you know, rodeo balloons. <laughs> um, and then and then we have the same for the house. So people can understand what is and dream a little more together and co-create what's possible. 
So let's say you're like mapping. I'm not a visual thinker. That's not really my cup of tea. I want to have some say, but I don't really want to noodle around with the maps. Mm -hmm. No harm, no foul. Uh, what people are able to do is also come up and, and tell their story and share um, verbal testimony or written testimony. So if talking in front of others, I promise we're nice people and we really want to hear from you. But if that's not your cup of tea, Mm -hmm. No harm, no foul. You can come on down and go to written testimony. And there's a place to provide a comment, right? So you can tell folks, you know, this is what I care about. I'm going to talk to you. We have a couple of examples here of the Gila wildfire zone yep. and why we need very unique representation around that. And then also to say why that is, to go into more detail. So there's no story too long or too short. However you tell the story of our communities, we want to hear it. And if people need some technical assistance, I'm also here to like, you know, it's not just about meetings with big old groups of people. I'm happy to talk to people one on one. Let's roll up our sleeves. And if you stump me, which is entirely possible, we've got a good team of folks to lean into, including the folks at District Ur. So we'll get you an answer. So you can I, I can't participate. Thank you enough. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your last bit there, my fault. I can't thank you enough for walking us through that. It looks very interesting. The idea, see, I'm a written, I'm a writer, you know, just how it goes. The written testimony is appealing to me. You have the ability to, to add links as I'm looking at here, community of interest. That's really fascinating. I can see a lot of ground being covered here emotionally. And I, I especially like your, your use of the word wisdom for people uh, to bring to the table. Uh, talk, Ed, talk about that if you would. Lily, I'll come back to you in a, for that in a quick second. You're looking for something from our citizens here. That's what's so clear uh, to me as I'm, as I'm listening here. Talk about that as a driving force, if you would. Well, the, the important thing is, is people know their community. We happen to be seven people who are appointed to serve on this committee. Yeah. We are not experts about your community. You happen to be the experts. You're the ones that are gonna be able to articulate what your interests are, what has happened over the last 10 years, mm -hmm. what is new in your district, what was old in your district that has not been fixed, and, and why it is important for us to consider your public testimony, because you happen to be the experts about your own communities, not us. Do not let us guess what your communities of interest are. Right. And that, that's the important thing. And, you know, the other reason for the public to participate is it's not only to judge us as a committee, but also think about the advocacy groups. We're going to have lots of advocacy groups presenting. You want to hear what they have to say. Are they saying things that, is, that are consistent with your beliefs and, and requirements? If so, maybe you want to join them. If not, maybe you don't want to join them. But either way, you learn about what the advocates are saying. Yeah. And you yourself get to participate. If you're not at the table to set the agenda, somebody else will set it for you, and you'll never know if they care or are even aware of your interest. So That's right. Participate. That's, right. That's well said. That's well said. Uh, Lily, can I ask you to pull up the schedule for August as it's as it's coming up? I want Absolutely. to talk about uh, this next. You've got Ed some stuff Absolutely. coming up. Uh, September is going to be a very important month, but I want to cover August here just real quick, Ed. Again, we're going to go through a lot of, you, you're, you mentioned earlier, but participation is not just a physical presence thing. There's going to be a Zoom connection for every one of these. Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. Zoom connection, some satellites, 
but in person, and we have meetings August 2nd in Santa Fe. We have a meeting August 5th, uh, also um, the 7th. I can tell you the, the 5th is going to be at Highlands, New Mexico Highlands in Las Vegas. August 7th is going to be at the Westminster High School Art Theater. August 9th, uh, we're going to Farmington to San Juan College. We'll have a satellite in, in Gallup. August 11th, we're going to Eastern New Mexico University. That's in Roswell. We'll have a satellite in Portales. Mm -hmm. August 12th, we're going to New Mexico State in Las Cruces. We'll have a satellite in Silver City. The 14th will be at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center. And the 15th will be at the Santa Clara Hotel uh, in Española. So it's a, busy it's, month. it's a busy, aggressive schedule. It is. And that, of course, I mentioned precedes September. September for the group means a whole lot of activity. Take, take us into September. What are you expecting to, to happen then? Here's the important thing. Uh, we stop in August 15th because August 16th is when the U.S. Bureau of Census is going to issue uh, some data. It's not going to be the official data, but research and polling will be able to use that. They'll be able to split the precincts. In August, we as a committee will, will work on, on telling the demographers what to propose. We will then have a meeting in September that actually proposes some concepts for the public to think about as far as the district maps. Then we're going to have another round of eight meetings, many in the, in the similar venues. Uh, we do plan on going to Crown Point to the uh, Navajo, Navajo Technical University okay. uh, in September. Uh, so that we uh, have a different venue. Uh, but we're going to do the same thing. We're going to want public input about those concepts. And after we gather all that public input, we'll uh, think about it, uh, might redraw maps. Then we have to propose uh, maps to be a, or adopt maps that we will actually recommend to the legislature. After we adopt the maps, uh, we have an obligation to provide written statements written evaluations of the maps. Do they comply with state law? Do they comply with the Voting Rights Act? Uh, have we preserved communities of interest? Are we preserving and not diluting minority voting rights? Uh, is it partisan fair? And we have to do those evaluations and submit those maps to the legislature by October 31st. So it, it, it's gonna be a very aggressive schedule for the committee. It, it is. I, I mean, October 31st in political time is about the week after next. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty quick. Um, Lily, go ahead and scroll. I want to make a point here. Go ahead and scroll to the bottom of the, oh, you're on the mission statement. Okay. I thought you were on the schedule. I took my eye. I can go there. back to the meetings and transparency. The, yeah, that's okay, the Jean. I just wanted folks to see the main Wait. website is to go mm -hmm. to www.newmexicoredistricting.org. Once yep. you're there, it will take you to the portal. It'll take you to the meetings. So back to the meetings and transparency. Ed is good. He's rattling them off faster <laughs> than I awesome. can scroll. He's on it. Um, <laughs> he's been working really hard on it. So we have them the, again. If if yeah, where would you like me to go to, Gene? If you go to the, my fault to cut you off there. If you go to the very bottom to the previous meetings, I want to make a point to the folks that there is a way to catch up with where you folks are pretty pretty quickly. You've got a full slate of the minutes, the actual uh, uh, broadcast, broadcast, the actual Zoom meeting itself. Um, and I, I would encourage folks to peel back, start where you folks started, and then catch up with the conversation we're having today. Go ahead, Ed. Mm -hmm. 
Ed, did you have a point there? My fault. I know. No, I, I think that's exactly right. That, that's part of the transparency. We, we want people to know what we're up to. And I love the fact that you all are, I think you're also going to be posting uh, some of the live stream meetings. And, and that's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you just mentioned that. We did cover the live stream from last Friday. Uh, we will continue to do so. And I'll let the folks know again, I'm going to wrap up here in a quick sec, but just let the folks know that this will be a continuing coverage issue for us here at New Mexico in Focus, not just on the show on Friday nights, but also during these Facebook Lives as these things come about. And what I would ask the both of you, Ed Chavez and Lily uh, Irvin Vitella, if we can visit with you again as the process moves along down the road, I'm not quite sure if there's a better time than another. We'll figure that out, maybe, maybe end of August, end of beginning of September, I'm not quite sure when, but we'll, we'll talk and, and figure that out. But, but if you're willing, I think there's going to be a lot of questions out there as folks start to dig into this more. It's probably gonna be that early slow surge and that big surge that usually comes <laughs> once awareness starts really happening. So we'd love to have you back again and talk about all these issues. I mean, this has been a, so informative and a brilliant opportunity for us as citizens to really roll up our sleeves here in a genuine way on something that is really quite critical, not just for communities of interest and communities of color, but for all of us, representation is the real fundamental bedrock of how we do our thing in our country. And we've got to have everybody in this game. So Ed Chavez, you're the chair of the Citizens Redistricting Committee. I want to thank you very much. And Lily, Lily Irvin Vitello, the community liaison for the CRC, I want to thank you very much as well. Uh, we're going to have in the thread in this conversation, our guy Kevin has put in the uh, link that Lily mentioned just a little bit ago. And Lily, if you want to share with us your contact information later, or off air, we can put that in too if you feel that's a worthy thing uh, to have citizens have access to you directly. We can certainly accommodate that uh, in the thread as well. Is there anything I'm forgetting, guys, to, that we should be letting the folks know? I, I just don't want to feel like we're leaving anything behind. Lily, can you think of anything that um, I appreciate you putting your note in there, by the way, um, that folks should know about this? The only thing that I else that I would offer is that I know people have a lot going on in their lives, right? We all do. And we make, we make choices all the time about where we put our time and energy. And there's a lot that goes on in this world that can break our hearts, but showing up at this kind of meeting, helping secure the foundations of our democracy is not just an act of justice, it's an act of love for community. And so whether you are some, I mean, I get it. I've had those times in my life where I'm just trying to figure out how to pay the bills, how to eat and how to take care of my kids. And it can seem kind of like, oh, this is, this is an out there issue. It's not, it has everything to do with making sure that the people who show up and have the honor of representing us in government do so in a way that's deeply informed by the people who they're representing. And so we have to co-create that. We have to act in that loving way toward one another and really show up. I really respect that. I very much do. That's a great way to put it. It really is. That's a beautiful ending note. Get involved, folks. It's a beautiful opportunity. <laughs> There's no reason not to with how these folks have laid out the website. I mean, it just couldn't be any easier. Again, thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. We'll catch up with this as, as time moves on, and we really want to help this be a success by getting as many people involved in the process as, as possible. So we'll be in touch again. And for folks on Friday night, we will be on a bunch of great subjects at seven o'clock, channel 5.1. We'll see you then. Until then, stay cool, stay safe, take care of yourselves.
All right, that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, but we've got much more coming up for you this coming week, including uh, a discussion with a former firefighter at Cannon Air Force Base who has firsthand knowledge of the use of aqueous firefighting foams, AFFFs, which have been tied to the spread of PFAS chemicals in the groundwater around Cannon. We also know that is true around Holloman Air Force Base and a handful of other military locations in New Mexico. We've been covering this at length over the course of the last 18 months as part of our groundwater war investigation. You can learn more about our reporting to date on the Groundwater War website, which you can find at nmpbs.org. But uh, just a lot of insights from this firefighter who worked there for for years and I think it's safe to say that some of what he has to say will will shock you when it comes to maintaining the integrity of our water supplies and especially our drinking water supplies here in New Mexico so I encourage you to tune in for that until then stay safe stay healthy thanks for listening